Hello, everybody. Long ago, in England, a wise and just king ruled the land. His name was King Uther. Times were good and the people lived well. King Uther wanted a magician at court and so he chose the famous Merlin the Magician. Merlin could see into the future and he knew that the good days were not going to last. King Uther and Queen Guinevere had a child, a baby son. At a castle party for the royal birth, Merlin the magician took the king aside and said, Sire, there is something you must know. Soon a great darkness will fall over this land. Your child is in great danger. Let me take the baby away, and I will be sure he stays safe. Merlin said the king in surprise, You are a great magician and you are my friend, but there is no way we would let anyone take our child away. Sadly, soon after the child's birth, the queen died. Not long after, King Uther was killed in battle. That very night, Merlin swept into the castle and took the child. The next morning, the royal nurse went into the nursery. Alas, an empty crib. In fear, the nurse, the nobles, the servants looked everywhere, but the baby was gone. For years, there was no king to sit on the throne, no king to set the laws. Men of high rank fought each other to be king. Darkness fell over the land. Robbers and bands of wild men ruled the streets of London. Evil evil men broke into houses and took what they wanted. Travelers on the roads were jumped and robbed. The people of England lived in fear. Or Baltimore, Los Angeles, you take the pick. (laughs) Yet far away there was a quiet place. A good knight, Sir Ector, lived in peace with his two sons. His first son was named Kay. His younger brother, Arthur, had been adopted as a baby. Years before, a stranger had come to Sir Ector with a baby. He asked if Sir Ector would raise the child. The old knight took the baby in his arms. Glad for a second child, he named him Arthur and raised the child as his own. By the time Arthur was 16, his brother became a knight and Arthur was his squire, carrying his brother's tunic, helmet, spears, and lances. Lance, this is the only time I have ever said the word Lance in my message, and you're here. (laughs) One morning in the middle of the town square of London, there was a large block of white marble, and resting upon, upon it was a large stone with the golden hilt of a sword and a few inches of a blade sticking out from it, shining in the sun. The rest of the sword was buried deep in the stone. What's more, these words could be seen on the top of the blade. 
Whoever pulls out this sword from this stone is the true king of England. Now you know how the story goes. Should I finish? As soon as the crowd knew about the message, men jumped up to that white marble block. One after another, they gave the sword a yank. Each tried and tried, but the sword stuck fast. It would not move. One said in gloom, there is no man alive who could pull out that sword. We'll see about that, said a voice from the crowd. The Duke of Cornwall, dressed in silks and ribbons, stepped up to the white marble block, and he said, Hear ye, hear ye, I call for a tournament to be held one month from today. Knights from everywhere and anywhere and everywhere in England are invited to come. There will be contests and prizes and a grand feast for all. Arthur's brother, Kay, joined this contest. And when he asked Arthur, his squire, for his sword, Arthur couldn't find it. He looked everywhere, but it was either lost or he forgot it at home. So Arthur went to the square and looking upon the sword in the rock, he said to himself, let's see if I can get this sword unstuck. And he pulled it and it moved. It's looser than I thought, he said to himself. And he pulled again, falling backward, sword in hand. When the crowd discovered that only Arthur could pull out the sword, because he later on came and put it back in, and then others said, well, now we can pull it out after he put it back in. But nobody could pull it out, only him. Someone in the crowd said, he must be our king. But others in the crowd protested. And naturally they would. He was a skinny teenager with no experience, a squire, a nobody. One tall and broad knight said, do you think this skinny boy should rule over us all? God says of all believers that they are his very own sons and daughters in a true familial manner, indwelt by God, possessing perfect righteousness, justified before all law, and possessing eternal life. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is absolutely true about you. You don't look it. (laughs) Arthur didn't look like a king yet either. It has not appeared what we will be. John writes that. But when we see Him, we will be just like Him. Meaning Christ. But you are who you are right now, and that by the grace of God. Become convinced, being coming, sorry, convinced of this, astounding truth, is one of the great keys to the Christian life. To become convinced of who you are in Christ. And if you do... You will live like a king. And by king, I mean with a capital K, our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But you have to be convinced of who you are. So convinced that you will not allow anything else, not that we're going to be sinless, of course, but you will not allow anything else to get in the way of your true destiny. There's another version of this story. Just quickly before we start. Maybe you've seen the movie. It's called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Arthur comes into a field and he happens upon two peasants, a man and a woman, working in the field. Arthur says, It is I, Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon, from the castle of Camelot, king of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign over all England. The two peasants are completely unimpressed. 
Arthur then says indignantly, I am your king. The woman says, well, I didn't vote for you. Arthur replies more indignant, you don't vote for kings. The woman asks, well, then how'd you become king then? Arthur, looking heavenward, angelic-like, says, the lady of the lake, her arm clad in the purest Samite, held the lost Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. The man replies, listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. All right, I thought it would be funnier. Now, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who think Monty Python is hilarious and those who don't get it at all. <laughs> Apparently, my congregation is the latter. That was a te- I, uh, when my daughter, Alyssa, she was somewhere, somewhere around six or seven years old. Maggie, this test is coming soon. And I played the Holy Grail for her uh, on TV. And uh, I was like, and I watched her. And she laughed the whole way through. And I was like, you are my daughter. So, here's the thing. Would you like to be convinced of your position in God's family, in Christ as your brother, so that your life is one filled with God? Not filled with things and God, but filled with God. And today I'm going to show you how that occurs. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful for the message in your word that reveals to us without a doubt that we are born again and saved by the Spirit, cleansed from all sin, imputed with your righteousness, and justified before all laws. You have pronounced us justified, the great judge. No one is above you to judge any different. As you say, we are complete in Christ. And so, because we are, Father, we have been given and and must live an incredible life that is difficult at times for us to understand, but yet you persist. Through your Spirit, you reveal to us who we are, what we are. You demand humility. You demand these virtues of humility, confession, understanding, and truth. Because it is the only way that we will come to understand what we are. And so, Father, through your word and through your spirit this morning, we ask that you impress upon us all the great joy of this life, the great challenge of this life, and to convince each of us that it is our very birthright. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please. Shall rise to thee. 
There's a, there's a number of passages in the New Testament that emphasize that we're no longer under the law. Romans 8 is one of them. Galatians 3, Galatians 5, 2 Corinthians 3. And uh, they go into it, all of these written by Paul, um, go into it quite intensely and clearly that we're not um, under the law anymore. So, if you're not under the law, how do you live? I appreciated in the story of Arthur that when there was no king, that things went into chaos. You know, people did what they want, wanted. We see it in our inner cities also where the law is not enforced. And even if there is a law, if it's not enforced, then people are become more criminal. So, if you're not under the law, how do you live? And ironically, this is the desire of the anarchist. Was it two summers ago where they were rioting and burning and, yeah, 
What do they want? No laws. Uh, but all those riots a couple of years ago were supposedly in pursuit of a society without laws, and how would that work out? If you weren't under the law, and by the way, you're not, how would you live? Some would say, any way I please. <clears throat> so the Corinthians decided, so can I do whatever I like? If we're not under the law, Paul was clear to teach them this. He reiterates it in the letters that he writes to Corinth. That you're no longer under the law, you're under grace. So can I do whatever I want? They didn't actually ask Paul this. They just went ahead and did it. And Paul's response was, stop it, kind (laughs) of. Let's look at the Bible. What does Jesus say? Stop it. Paul writes, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And here's his conclusion in the very next line. The temple of God is holy. And that is what you should be? No. Are. Are. Hmm. Paul's motivation is not some threat of loss. It's not negative, actually, in any way. It's completely positive. And this is what we're after today. I'm, this word, holy, what does it mean? Separate unto God, completely and utterly dedicated to God in every area of my life. That means separation unto Him, away from the world and the flesh, and dedicated and obedient to Him. That's what holy is. All of heaven, right? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, right? All of heaven is holy. And that is where we are. Where's your citizenship? Where's your destiny? Where did life, the life that you have, where did it come from? The bread of life that has come from heaven is the Lord. So it turns out that Paul doesn't bring up the law. He says, this is what you are, and the temple of God is holy. And it turns out that the believer in Christ in this age is in this position, not being under the law. So can I do what I like? The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. He's in here, here, he's in me. Isn't it amazing how we're so convinced of it? That is supernatural. No earthly reason should convince anybody who looks like you and me that we're the temple of God and dwelt by God. There's there's no amount of evidence, reason, intellect, whatever, philosophy, that would convince anybody of that truth. And yet we are. We were born for this reason. Well, apparently I didn't put it on the board, or did I? I did not. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. I'll say it again. He chose us in Him, elected, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be, really it's an infinitive Paul uses there, present infinitive, to be holy and blameless in His presence. Before Him means in front of Him. 
Holy means to be separate from the secular, old ways of the world. Separate from them, they are not of me anymore. Can Arthur in the story say, "What? I'm Uther's son? Seriously? Huh. You know what? Being king sounds like a tough job. I, I, I just want to be a squire. Can I just be a squire still? Yeah, who would read the story? Right? It's a, it's, <laughs> it's a myth. It's not real. But, you know, and, and, and Paul makes this case. You're children of light, he says in Ephesians 5. So walk in the light. He said, don't fellowship with the darkness because you used to be darkness, but you are no longer. Because you've been transformed by Christ. Transformed, you've been regenerated. So, according to Paul, Peter, John, everybody in the New Testament, can we go back to being the squires that we were? The slaves that we were? Slaves to what? Sin and death. And the Bible says it's not an option. Holy is the same root word as sanctification, hagios in Greek, hagiosune and so on. Uh, And the Bible speaks about that the believer is sanctified and that he should live sanctified. So we call this, theologically we call it positional and experiential sanctification. Paul is exhorting us as holy people who are holy by the blood of Christ. He's exhorting us. He's saying, look, this is what you are. But then he encourages us, exhorts us and commands us to live this way. And he says, you know what, guys? You're obligated. Obligated, yes. It's the same word, Ophelia. That's what the... uh, that name must come from this word. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's a stupid joke just came into my head. I'm such a juvenile. Uh, on the, you know, when, you, when the substitute teacher came in and you wrote all those, of course you didn't. I know you didn't, but we did. You know, wrote in the false name like gymnasium and some other ones that I can't say in church. And one of them was Ophelia Bottoms. Did you write that one in? We did. Just praying that the sub would read the names out loud. I haven't progressed far from that point. I love that humor. <laughs> um, we are obligated. The, the Greek word, so we're in our, we studied the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our what? In Matthew. Forgive us our... Not, it wasn't, he didn't use sins, right? Debt same exact word that's used by Paul in Romans 8.12. We are in debt. But in the, case, in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord said, forgive us our debts, those are your sins. The way Paul uses it is that you are in debt to the new life. And it's not so much you're in debt to Christ because that would be a false idea that you somehow have to pay him back as if you could. But it means that you're obligated. And he uses this word in the exact same way that if, he said to the Galatians, if you guys get circumcised, you're in debt to the whole law. You can't just pick and choose. If you're going to put yourself under the law, you are obligated to the whole thing. 
in the same way, we're absolutely obligated to Christ. Arthur has to be king, and so do you. We're priests and kings in the kingdom of God, and we have to be this. Now, we're not going to do it. To, to actually live this, you need complete commitment. And when I say complete, believe me, I understand. We're sinners. We have good days and bad days. But I can't really, if, if we're going to, and it takes time. You know, Arthur is a 16-year-old kid. But so is David. When David fought Goliath, what was he? He was a scrawny little teenager. Good with a sling. But still, scrawny little teenager. He was anointed by Samuel to be king, but when he was anointed, he wasn't remotely ready. Mm-mm. Took time. You and I take time. But David was committed. He wasn't perfect, but this was his goal. And it has to be ours. Right? We were born for this. Born again for this. Uh, holy, we find it in the Torah as well. Deuteronomy 7, 6, God said to Israel, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you. It's the same language that God uses of us. But it's different now because each of us individually are elected. In this case, it's a nation of people. And in that nation, there are believers and unbelievers. But elected means to be set apart. And then in experience, that's the position in experience, he says to them in Leviticus 11.44, Be holy, for I am holy. So the believer is under obligation to be holy. So Now, we're looking at God the Holy Spirit, and we're going to look at the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. And my, my plan for this morning was to actually summarize the ministry of the Spirit in Romans 8, but there's too much in it. The Spirit is mentioned 17 times in Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit is referenced 17 times. So, you know, you don't want to cram too much into one sitting. So, And I'm not going to go in order. You know, that, that would make sense, but when have I ever been committed to that? You know, it, so we're going to start in Romans 8.12. And then the other key passage before this is Romans 8.4. And we're going to pursue that on Tuesday. But uh, Romans 8.4 is basically what you just heard in the first, you know, about 15 minutes here. That you've been justified. And since you've been justified by Christ, when it comes to the law... What was the purpose of the law? You know, if, if anybody, Paul said in Romans 4, if anybody could be justified by the law, they would be. But they're not, because no one could keep it. Abraham wasn't justified by keeping the law. Abraham wasn't even alive when the law was given. He was long dead. But Abraham was justified by what? By faith. And so, we are as well. And being justified, we're not under a law anymore. So if you're not under a law, like I said, are you lawless? How, are, how am I supposed to live? You mean I'm free to do whatever I want? And God says, well, that's really not what freedom is. 
especially for a fallen creature. Freedom is not do whatever you want. Freedom is the opportunity to truly live as a person, a type of person, who is holy. So in other words, I'm not, there aren't a bunch of laws that I say, well, what should I do right now? That law, check it off. What should I do right now? That law, check it off. Like, I know those laws, but I am the type of person who does this naturally. Now, it's going to take some education by the Word of God, a lot of trust, a lot of commitment. All of these things are words of faith, by the way. They're not works. You will do lots of work but work that you love and enjoy because that's who you are. Do you think when God, you know, it was, was it, did it please God to save us? Or was he like, oh, I can't believe this. What a mess. What am I? I don't want to become a man. I don't want to have to save them. Can we condemn them and just kill them all? And then the Trinity's like, no, no, no. There's argument, right? That's why you always have three. So there's a majority. So the father was outvoted, and he's like, fine. No, the son was outvoted, and they're like, well, since you were negative, you go. Is that how it all went? <laughs> but we read in Isaiah in the servant song. Oh, I think of the servant songs. I, I get misty. Um, God was pleased to crush his son. It makes no sense. Of course it makes it doesn't make any sense to us. But this plan of salvation, right? Why do we love stories like King Arthur? Because they're wonderful. There's always there's the underdog who's actually really the one, and there's always somebody evil in the story who's, you know, because the throne is empty, he's going to take it by force, and he's evil, and he's selfish, and he's a tyrant. And then comes this young, so-called upstart that ruins everything, and he's going to kill him. And we just can't wait, as we're watching the movie or reading the story. We can't wait to get to that climax where he takes the throne, just kills the evil guy, and the evil guy gets what he deserves. It's actually in the Bible. You know, why do we love those stories? We can totally identify with the characters. Hopefully not the evil one. But it's, it's a story that actually happened in Judah. And the little boy, who was an infant king, was Josiah. And his mother, well, it was, uh, yeah. His mother, who was uh, not an Israelite, she was from the north, from Israel. So she was an Israelite, is what I mean. She wasn't from Judah. But when her son, the king, died, I think his name was Ahaziah, you know, all those ayahs that were kings, I can't remember them all. But as soon as he died, she killed everybody so that she could take the throne and keep it. She killed all his brothers. And his sister took this infant Josiah and hid him away. And she didn't know anything about it. But then the time came. And she, her name is Athaliah, I think. Sounds like liar. 
She was killed. Guess where she was killed? In the horse stable. Right where she deserved to be. Uh, so why do we love these stories again? Now, the, the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation is this story. The son, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Fast forward to the very end of the book of the Bible in Revelation 22 and where they're saying, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. What is he coming as at the second coming? He came first time as a servant. The second time he comes as the king. And are we not with him? So all of this in the Bible is given to us. It's truly, uh, you know, to the world, it is a complete fairy tale. But to us, it's the reality of things not seen. And so read with me Romans 8, 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. There it is. We're debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Now, this in no way, you see, read it in context. Paul here is not saying that, look, when you sin, you die. Well, then we'd all be dead. Or that it's some kind of spiritual death. But that's not stated here. What's stated is the contrast between what you're obligated to and what you're not obligated to. And what you're obligated to is the life of the Spirit, which you're no longer obligated to or in debt to, slave to, is the flesh. Why is that? Well, it's all here in Romans. It's one of Paul's great letters, greatest. In Romans 6, the flesh has been crucified with Christ. And I'm no longer under it. So, you are under obligation, in debt, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, and that life is what? There's that life, the holy, eternal life that we live. Eternal life is an experience, not just a duration of time. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic, Father is Greek, Pater. It's likely that Paul is actually quoting what Jesus called his father all the time. Called him Abba. He spoke, mostly he spoke Aramaic, we would think. And he called him Abba. And this is bizarre for a Jew to be calling. They wouldn't even say God's name at that point. They weren't calling him Jehovah. or No one called him Jehovah. That's a false pronunciation. But they weren't calling him Yahweh. <laughs> Uh, Yahweh or Yavah, they weren't calling him that. They called him Adonai, which means master or Lord. They did that because they thought the name too sacred to pronounce. And yet here's Jesus, this quote-unquote upstart from Nazareth, calling Jehovah, Yavah, calling him Abba. And so Paul states that here, this is what we call him now. When Jesus was resurrected, he said to Mary, that, you know, this one Mary is like, oh my God, you're Jesus, resurrected, she gets it. He says, go to my disciples and say to them, I go to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. 
Our Father who is in heaven. What I'm speaking of here, and what Paul is speaking of here, is actually the gospel. We think we know the gospel. When we believed in Christ as our Savior, we believed the gospel. And we understood a fraction, a small fraction of what the gospel is. In Greek, euangelos, which is the word for, for gospel, means good news. And what is, this is the good news. That God is your Father. That you're a child of God. That you are no longer obligated to the flesh, but now you're obligated to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's now your obligation. <clears throat> and what a cruel joke if God made us obligated to live a life that we couldn't. Like you have no other choice but to live this life. And I'm like, that's impossible. But if God says you're obligated, what does that mean? You can do it. We all can do it. Right? And it should be a joyful you can do it. Like hot dog. I'm no longer in, enslaved to the, to the flesh, to sin, to the world, to selfishness. I'm not. And yet my, my flesh... I, I, I gasp because my flesh has been a real pain in the flesh uh, to me lately. And I just want it, I, you know, I was thinking about it yesterday. Will you please die? I know what that means. <laughs> I'm no idiot. But, you know, could you, could you stop? Could you just go away? I'm tired of you. And yet, I ain't going anywhere. I could throw in the towel. Right? I could just say, oh, the hell with it. The bleep with it. I was, I was wondering if we could get the technology. You know when they, they, they fuzz out your, your, your lips when you swear? And then and they put in a little beep? That would be good. But that would be terrible, actually, for me. <clears throat> so we're, we need to be convinced. We need to be convinced despite our track record which for every one of us in this room hadn't been all that good. <laughs> and not that I know all of your backgrounds personally. I can just say that with great confidence because I know the Scripture. And I know some of you, you're terrible. <laughs> so where does this motivation come from? The reason all of us throw our lives into this is because of the Gospel. Nothing, that's it. There is your reason. The gospel. He, Paul continues. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself, who indwells us, testifies. That's the word for witnessing. Testifies with our spirit, our inner self, that we are children of God. You see that R? It's dogmatic. We are. The children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. <coughs> so Paul would seem here to speak of, well, he, we'll just leave it at this. He now in verse 17 introduces the fact that as you live this life, you will suffer. And there seems to be, there's an inheritance with God that he says here, we are all heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. And so there seems to be a further inheritance. See, I have to say seems to be because he's not super clear. 
But what we are clear on is that if you live this life in this world, with this flesh, you are going to suffer. The flesh is going to make you suffer. I mean, even if nobody in the, everybody in the world was like, you know, I'm going to leave Joe alone. <laughs> God bless. That would be great. But it, 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 even if that happened, I'd still have to deal with this. With this. And I, you suffer by resisting it. It's not easy. Which is why most a lot of people just give in. Because it's painful. And yet, Paul says to us here, look, if you suffer with him, your fellow heirs with Christ. And because you know he suffered, you suffer, and this life is the life of the children of God. It's the gospel. You are children. And if you're children, you have an inheritance. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ has come into the world to save us and to give us his life, which includes your inheritance. So, <clears throat> key terms here is obligation, not to the flesh but to the Spirit, and the convincing of the Holy Spirit to us within that we are in this position and being in this family, which is God's family, again, sons and daughters, not, not God is our creator, but God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our brother, and we're members of one another in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. And being this family has a way to it. What is the way of God's family? It is the way of holiness, blamelessness, righteousness. So as I said before, now that you're here, you know, Pastor Bob used to always say, it's kind of like getting into the mafia. You didn't know what you were getting into, but now you can't get out. Does Arthur really have a choice to go back to being his older brother's squire? The story would be terrible. And that's why we love these stories. Uh, we actually identify with the characters in stories like this. Uh, Tolkien's story, uh, Lord of the Rings, same, same uh, technique he uses. Aragon is the king. He doesn't really want to be. That's the other thing. So, the other thing I want to mention is, when comes the self-doubt? How about David? Did David get self-doubt? What did David need to be trained to be a king? He's anointed king. He flattens and kills Goliath. As a kid, but he's still not ready to run a kingdom. You know, for us, running a kingdom is running our lives. When Paul, like say for instance, Paul. How about Paul? Paul's another one. Was he ready at the beginning? Oh, no. No. All right, God strikes him blind. He has to go to Ananias in, in Jericho. And then he gets his sight back. And God says to him, God says, I will show him how much he must suffer in his service of me. Paul needed a thorn in the flesh, did he not? Paul needed to struggle. That's the lead-in to Romans 8, is the end of Romans 7, where Paul has struggled so mightily with sin that he says, wretched man that I am. All of them had to get trained 
They're anointed. At, you're anointed at the moment of salvation. There's a false doctrine out there that there's a so-called second anointing. That is nowhere in the scripture. You're anointed by God at the moment of salvation, meaning that you were entered into union with Christ by the baptism of the Spirit, and then the Spirit indwelled you. And that is forever. And so, we're anointed. Are we ready to rule our lives? Not yet. Uh, <clears throat> so, it takes time. You know, what did it take for David to be prepared? Well, he got called to the court of King Saul. He didn't, appoint, he didn't uh, sign up for the job. He was appointed by God. And then he falls into disfavor with Saul because he's so successful on the battlefield and people love him more than they love Saul, which wasn't that hard to do. And uh, then Saul tried to kill him. Saul chased David in the wilderness for 10 years. For 10 long years, David was on the run, sometimes with the Philistines, sometimes in the wilderness, sometimes in this place called Ziglag, which was his own city. And if, where we get the real history of that is in David's Psalms. Because it's there that he pours out his heart. And in some of these Psalms, the title is right there. I'm on the run. Right? My life is about to, be, about to end. And what's the most famous one that we all know and love? And we should. 23. I walk through what? But I don't fear evil. The Lord is with me. It takes time to be completely convinced of that. And so God has a plan for your life where you're going to grow from being a skinny little upstart kid to a strong, king-like, queen-like figure. Now, it's still up to us what we do with that time. Because it's going to take time. But what are we going to do with that time? So when we started this doctrine on being filled with the Spirit, we had a class on filling yourself with everything else. Right, this cell phone, not that you can't use your cell phone. You don't, have, you don't listen to me to tell you what to do anyway, right? It's the Scripture that tells you what to do. But we saw in this. But people in our world, especially now with all the technology, can fill their lives every single day with this, with hundreds of things that are entertaining, distracting from what reality is. And we as Christians can go through years and not pursuing what this is. Right, we can go years. And this becomes, this is kind of a sideshow. If, especially if you became a Christian as an adult. I was born again and saved at 25 years old. And, you know, it's, it's just now it's another thing added to my life. Is now, now I'm Christian. I'm a Christ, Christianity is added to my life. And what none of us really understand at that time is that it is the only life. It's not now. Now I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a worker. I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a husband, and I'm a Christian. So it's just like another thing added on. So it's like you're all these things, and you're like one tenth Christian. 
and you're 100% Christian and God says this is now what you are and all the other things fall underneath it. You work, you serve, you love as unto the Lord. Now you do all things in His name because He is all and in all and through all. And we must be careful because to be trained to live holy the way that we are called to, the way that pleases God, which Paul will mention in Romans 8, it's going to take years and years and we can waste that time and not prepare ourselves for this kingship of which we're obligated. When David goes through the wilderness fleeing from Saul, there's high points, there's low points, there's stuff in between. He despairs. Am I really, really going to do this? Can I really do this? All of them. Where's my? There it is. David wasn't ready. Was Moses ready? God said, "Go to Israel." He's like, "Yeah, maybe you should send someone else." I'm really not a good speaker. Some. There was some had a theory that Moses had a lisp, and then I remember a Bible class where Bob, Pastor Bob, <laughs> he did he did the whole Exodus three, let my people go, and all that with a lisp. I won't do it because that is just it's wrong. For someone does have a speech impediment, but pretty funny. Is that you know, God said go free my people? Moses is like, I don't know if I can do that. Was he con- when he first went before Pharaoh? Was he confident? Heck no, he's shaking in his sandals. But over time, God prepares this man, just like He did David. How about Paul? Same thing. Time took time. Yeah, we look, in the Bible. Time goes by in like uh, ten years and two verses, and you know we we think this should be a piece of cake. You know, it's going to take time. So again, in Romans 8.14, Paul says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. And in the context, that slavery is obligation to the flesh. No longer. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So, hold on now. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And here's where, you know, it, it takes a bit of technicality to kind of unravel the things that are written in passages like this because they're so important. And we're going to look at a little more technicality on, on Tuesday, but he says here, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Does that mean all believers are led by the Spirit? Oh, this is great. Who says no? You you say no? <laughs> I like nobody wants to be wrong. Not it's okay to be wrong, by the way, because we have to figure stuff out. Are all believers led by the Spirit of God? Does anybody say yes? And everybody says the rest are not committed or don't want to offer. I get it. I get it. That's a kind of a new thing. I'm sorry if it makes you feel nervous. 
I, I enjoy my, I enjoy the audience participation quite a bit. Well, it says these are the sons of God. Are you a son of God? You are led by the Spirit. And you're led by the Spirit, you know, sometimes we, and, and this is where it gets, you know, it gets tricky. We say, well, wait a minute. If I'm not filled with the Spirit, I'm not being led by the Spirit. But see, that's a conclusion that you made in your own, well, somebody made in their own minds. And, you know, you have to have Scripture for that. If I'm, say I'm sinning, could I be led by the Spirit still? Well, it depends on where He's leading you. I mean, I would say yes, but again, it's of my opinion that when uh, the discipline of the Lord comes upon me, that that's leading, that's grabbing you by the nape of the neck and pulling you in a certain direction. But we are those, you know, and, and how you would answer this would, you know, depend on some things, but we have to go in the context of the Bible. So head back to Romans 8.4. Let's look at context just a little. And to me, this is the key verse of the whole chapter. Depending on how you answer Romans 8, 4, is you're going to be your interpretation of the whole chapter. And I, this has got to be, in, a, in my opinion, but not only in mine, it's one of the greatest chapters of the whole Bible. Because it truly displays what Christ has done for those who have believed upon him. So Romans 8, 4, I only have four in my scripture, but uh, let's go to here. Let's go to verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the law of Moses. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in his own flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what Paul says here is that the requirement, and and this is not really translated great because this word requirement is actually a word for justification, and it's actually translated justification in Romans 5. But, and we'll see that Tuesday. So it would better be translated righteous requirement of the law. So what does the law require? You get 613 commands coming from God to Israel. What does it require of Israel? That you follow the whole thing and be righteous. And if you're righteous before God, you're justified. And Paul is clear here, as is God in so many other passages, that nobody could do it. So can you be justified by the law? No. Romans 4, all of Galatians, no, you cannot. You cannot be justified by the law. So what does the law require of you? That you're justified and righteous. But you're not. But (laughs) when my Lord hung on a cross and put himself in the place of judgment and was judged for all of the sins of the world, judged for my sins, by his death, by his blood, I am reconciled to God. This is the gospel. And because I am reconciled, because I am righteous now, I'm justified. 
And notice the language. The require, look at verse 4 again. So the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So big question. And how you answer this question leads you in your interpretation of the whole chapter. Is the requirement of the law fulfilled in you when you're walking by the Spirit, which would mean that when you're not walking by the Spirit, that the requirement of the law is not fulfilled in you? And is that what he's saying? Now, chew on that. Or, is Paul saying that we who walk by the Spirit are those who have fulfilled the law? Who are those who walk by the Spirit? Well, and there's some technicality here has to be worked through a little bit. But it reveals to us that those who have fulfilled the law are those who are of the type who have been designed to whose what did Paul say what? We are obligated. We are those who walk by the Spirit. And we say, well, wait a minute, God, we don't always do that. Yeah, no kidding. You're righteous and you're sanctified, but you don't always act righteous, do you? No, you don't. But do I call you righteous? Amen. Is your sins cast so far from you that God doesn't remember them anymore? It's the New Covenant, Romans 8. Uh, Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. Your sins and your iniquities I remember no more. Isn't it the sins and iniquities that violate the law? Absolutely. What in the world has God done? That's the great question. You see, you see how absolutely magnanimous this is. What God has actually done for us. And it's right here. And we're so... Like it's so good, like God is so good, that we try and find ways to make it not as good as it is. Because, come on, it can't be this good. I'm forgiven of all of my sins. Well, wait a minute. If you're going to tell me this, Pastor, then I'm going to go do whatever the I want. See, there was my bleep. And some people have done this. But does it change the truth? What was Paul's response to the Corinthians who did just that? They did that. Paul had spent a year and a half in Corinth training them, teaching them. A year and a half sitting in the same place. When he first went there, he had to work because they wouldn't support him. So he's working with uh, uh, Aquila and uh, Priscilla and Aquila, making tents or making sails or whatever he's doing. And, and then finally, he gets a gift from the Macedonians and he can quit his job, which he did. And he went into the ministry full time, training the Corinthians. And then he leaves and on his third missionary journey. He's hanging out in Ephesus. And this girl, Chloe, who has just left Corinth, comes up to him and says, Paul, we got to talk. All hell is broken loose in Corinth. And he's like, what? How is that possible? And he's mad. Always mad. You know, we have two letters to the Corinthians. He wrote four. Those two of them are missing. God was like, that ain't inspired. Jeez, Paul, settle down. 
This was an imprecatory letter. We're not gonna we're not gonna keep that one. Paul was mad. But what did he tell them? You're the temple of the living God, and the temple of God is what? Holy. This is it. This is it. We are those designed by God to walk by the Spirit. This is who you are. You are obligated to it because your sins and iniquities are all gone. You are no longer under the obligation of the flesh. No longer. It is incredible. So I liken it to describing people who are gifted at something, like music, of which I wish I were. We would say, wow, those people can really play. But they're not playing all the time, are they? No. And they still make mistakes, don't they? I'd say even Yo-Yo Ma would make a mistake on his cello every once in a while. But they're not playing all the time. They still make mistakes. They're not perfect musicians. But we say of them, that's a musician. They're of a certain type. right? You have been born again by the Spirit of God as a certain type. You're designed to live this way. So you and I got to be convinced. You've got to be absolutely convinced of this. And the Holy Spirit was in us, is in us, to convince us of this. That slide was out of order. Here we go. So, to close. We need time to truly pursue the life of Christ in a committed fashion. We need time. But in a committed fashion, we can, we can waste, waste time. So, as Paul says here, pursue righteousness. I highlighted godliness because godliness is uh, the Greek term eusebia, which means to be well-devoted. It means to be completely devoted. That's what godliness is. Pursue. That word is di- That means make every effort. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance and, ge- perseverance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. All right, it's important. And we say, oh, I knew there was a catch, right? I knew it. I got to do something. This is of faith. If you truly got transported to heaven and you're like, you know, God, there's a sword and a stone and God says, pull that sword out. If you can pull that out, you will enter into my kingdom. And out it comes with ease. Like, oh, great. So you walk in and you're in this enormous new Jerusalem, this palace. And everywhere you look is righteousness and holiness. And there's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. And there they all are in the whole royal family. This is actually depicted for us in Hebrews 12. And we're like, would I pursue this life if I were there? That would be easy, wouldn't it? You say, well, yeah, i got a resurrection body with no sin nature. I get that. But that's why there's suffering now. So Paul said at the end of that, the, our passage today, if we suffer with Christ, we're fellow heirs with Christ, and then in the next line, he goes right into, yeah, we're going to suffer. And why are we going to suffer? Because the flesh, the world, they don't do this. And if you're doing this in the face of your flesh, the flesh doesn't, the flesh doesn't pursue righteousness. That's, you know, that's not a deep spiritual principle. That you all understand that. It's going to fight you. 
And here we are far from that new Jerusalem. It's there. Jesus said, I go prepare a place for you. It's up there waiting for us. And so we've got to stay in communication, right? It's part of this pursuing. And right here in Romans 8, it says you're too weak to pray really well. (laughs) So the Holy Spirit's going to help you in your weakness of prayer. It's coming right up, right after Paul mentions all of this. Uh, Next. Okay, there we go. My slides are way out of order. That's cool. We each need to consistently revisit the Scriptures through faith and really chew on God's Word. When I say chew, I don't mean devour. My initial word I wanted to use was metabolize, which is a lot of us are used to from themes ministry and, and Pastor Bob's ministry. So, but you know, I went with chew because you know this is something you want to spend time on and meditate on. Really learn it. You know, really pray about it, learn it, take your time, read it slow. You know, I'm a bit behind in the Bible reading this year. <laughs> <laughs> as many of us are. And now, now I'm in Leviticus, and I'm like, you know what, I think I'll skip Leviticus. I mean, I, that's the worst. It's the worst. And I, no, I'm not going to do it. And I've already, you know, just slowly going through it, I've seen some things that I wouldn't have seen. <laughs> it's all there. So be a thinker, not a stinker. And then lastly, Motivation truly boils down to the truth of the gospel. This is your motivation. Who are you? My initial idea was to put up a picture of the album cover of the Who's, Who Are You? And it's just like, that doesn't fit with church. (laughs) It's like Roger Daltrey with his long hair and and, uh, what's his name, the guitarist. I've seen them live in concert many years ago. Amazing. But yeah, not appropriate for church but you can sing it. You know the tune. Who, 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 who? Who are you? The gospel is not something of the past when you believed in it for your salvation. You only truly know a small small portion of it then. The whole realm of the gospel is a lifetime pursuit. What has Christ done? Who is Christ? Who am I? What has He done to me? What is my future? All of this is all a part of the gospel. And uh, uh, thankfully, the Holy Spirit is within us to convince us. So, you are a king or a queen in God's royal family. You're a priest under your high priest. You're God's child. You have His name. And you're in his family. You will be for all of eternity. By faith, not by works. None of us can boast. And so, by faith, we can pursue what we are. And if we're convinced of it, it will absorb us. If we have our doubts, God will work on that. 
Now, coming up, we'll see that even in the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to circumcise your hearts. Even, <laughs> did you say ow? <laughs> Fortunately, I don't remember. I was just a kid. But uh, anyway, sorry, that was terrible. What a way to end. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, it, God is going to actually, even in the Old Testament, help them to come to see. And, and now it's far greater because now the Spirit is inside of you to help you see because God demands our entire heart. It's very clear that you are to love Him with how much of your heart? All your heart. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for Your Word and thank You for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ in providing for us the salvation that each of us possess by grace, through faith, not of works. And therefore, Father, we don't boast in anything. But we adore You and thank You. We thank You. You are the One, the Holy One, our Father who is in heaven. Holy is Your name. And Father, by this truth, we know that we are a part of Your kingdom and that we have been therefore given a life that is appropriate for that kingdom. May we come to see and understand it so that we may pursue it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and spirit. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. All right, we'll take our offering at this time and, and finish up. Let's pray for our offering. We thank you, Father, for your word. Uh, thank you for the opportunity through your word to know that we are to be gracious givers. We give with joy, Father, as your believer priests and worship in honor of you. We ask that you bless uh, our usage of the things that you give us, Father, so that they may be to your glory. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Let's close in prayer. We thank you, Father, for our gathering. We thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy, which is completely based upon your word, your truth, your son. Each of us call him our brother and you our father. And so, Father, you have unified us through the truth. We close our service offering to anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. And if you're listening to me, and you are on the fence about who Christ is, I can tell you truthfully, and God will reveal this to you, that He is the only Savior of the world. Only in Him can any man be saved. And what I mean by saved is have eternal life with God forever. 
Christ died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. As he hung hung between heaven and earth, all the sins of the world were judged upon him. That is true of no other person. Therefore, your salvation is not by works, but by faith. To accept, to believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior who died for your sins and in three days rose again from the grave and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He sits in heaven waiting for you. Will you believe upon Him and be saved? Thank you, Father, and thank you for all things. We ask in Christ's name, Amen.